Hello, my name is Charles Bowman and today, well, I'm delighted to host another exclusive interview on Off The Agenda with a British entrepreneur who has established his brand as a powerhouse in the world of consumer retail. Starting his career as a musician, working with the likes of James Brown and Maxi Priest and nominated for a Best Reggae Act MOBO Award in 1998. Then appearing on the BBC's Dragon's Den where he secured a £50,000 investment and partnered up with business mogul Peter Jones. The brand he created sits amongst the likes of Heinz, Marmite, Coleman's and Hellman's, a condiment that is found in homes right across the UK. He's a man whose early years can be traced to the beautiful island of Jamaica, where he honed his passion for cooking with the support of his grandmother. Known to many as the Dragon Slayer, and to some simply as Keith, he truly represents the best of Britain through business, entrepreneurship, culture, and community. We know and we love him as Levi Roots. Levi, thank you. Thank you for joining uh, me and us today. And it's an absolute delight to be able to meet with you. And I start by saying that I hope you're keeping safe, sane, and well. Indeed, you're looking extremely well in front of me. But I ask, as indeed I ask everyone, how are you faring in, in these challenging times? I'm good. Thank you very much, Charles. As you know, it's lockdown here, so we're all going to make do with what you've got. And I've got a little space um, here that I try to keep fit. Um, so that's why maybe I'm looking a little bit buffed. Um, it's, it's just the space in front of me that I utilize a lot. Very good. Well, that's a positive start uh, to our discussion. Thank you. And may I talk a little bit about your backdrop and how you, you're growing up, if I can put it that way. And you were born in Jamaica. You moved to the UK when you were aged 11. You were a remarkably successful musician, performing with stars such as James Brown and Maxie Priest. And I, I know you were a friend of Bob Marley too and were nominated for a Best Reggae Act MOBO Award back in 1988. And then in 2006, you gained that widespread fame after appearing on Dragon's Den, where you gained funding for Reggae, Reggae Source. Can you just perhaps tell us a little bit more about that journey from Jamaica through to the Dragon's Den? Well, yeah, I, there's only sort of one word I can describe my, my life through then of, of sort of concising um, nearly 40 years or so within music and, and food before I got to Dragon's Den, is um, that it was a romp. You know, it really was that because my it was a bit like going through um, good things and bad and and failures and and everything, and and then eventually to use all that, including the failures that that I went through, now to wrap that in the in a bubble and try to make some good of it. By the time I was forty six, that's when I I managed to be able to focus myself enough to be able to, to rack up all that, the shame and everything, you know, of, of failures, which normally before I discovered the true me, I would have thought that forget your failures, forget who you are before, don't use any of that. And, and I think my greatest part of my story is when I added those bits to my life and, and really be comfortable with who I was. Um, by the time I was 46, and, and I was launching at the Notting Hill Carnival, um, just uh, perhaps a year and a half before Dragon's Day, when I launched, when I gave the source the name, and actually now we're saying that this is not about Levi the singer that, that did all the stuff that you mentioned, or even Levi the source, the source man, 
and which I now had become known amongst local people. Um, this was now trying to put these two elements together and try to come up with something that was really different. And it was when I launched at the carnival and I realized that I did have something special. I still had my music. I didn't have to sort of put that down. Yep. Um, I brought that on board as well. And then the natural salesperson of, of, of my, and the natural knack that I had to sell something, um, I put that together and that was the creation of it. But you know, everything that's in there came from the original teaching of my grandma, because I think those original sort of groundation that you get from someone like a grandma, it, it, when you grew up like I did, you know, the youngest of, the, of six children, um, back in Jamaica, having to be one of the last ones to come over because my parents couldn't do with a young child here when they were trying to work and trying to send for us. And then every every year I would see one of my brothers leave. I, I leave and not really understanding why. Until eventually it was my time to come to leave my grandma, who was mom, dad, and chief inspector and everything to me in, in fun. <laughs> and, um, and then having to be rooted up from her um, without having a choice. Um, you know, at the age of 11, to, to come to the UK to connect again with my brothers and sisters and my mom and dad, who I didn't really know. Um, they left when I was quite, quite young. So a, a pretty much tumultuous life then, but still having to wrap that all up together with my grandma's teaching, which became the center of what the source was about and what I was trying to sell that it wasn't just about me and my music. This is a story of a family story as well, too, of, of someone that inspired me greatly to be cooking like the, way I, like the way I did. And I wanted to wrap that all up together and put that in the bottle. And people at the carnival understood. Um, and that gave me confidence now to take that Levi roots on the road not the Levi of the failures and everything else, but the one that could identify with that. But we're still saying this is a new me, but I'm not going to hide you know, all that. I'm still that Rasta man from Brixton that had all the problems. That was but, but adding that new way of thinking to that and use those skills to sell the sauce, those natural flair from being on the street. But then the business side of it, to be able to be attracted to someone like a Peter Jones on Dragon's Den and to have the trust of one of the most astute business person in, in, in the country. You know, that's the business side of me that's going to make that better. That's going to have attraction. And so putting those two together was how I managed to overcome the Dragon's Den and I managed to, to sell Levi Roots and not just the sauce. Well, that's a tremendous tale, uh, Le Levi. You bring out lots of important things there, whether it's learning from mistakes, importance of family, mentorship, and, and, and mu mu much more. So as a, an official Dragon Slayer, you, you were awarded that £50,000. And I quote, Levi really stood out to many viewers due to his style and approach, which was 100% him, and yet also very much not the standard pitch. It swayed the public. How, how did you feel about appearing on the BBC's Dragons then? And do you think that that sense of originality and authenticity were advantages or perhaps added challenges in winning over the Dragons? Well, I've got to say, you know, Sir Charles, I, I, I was perhaps the only one that really believed that I could do it. Um, and and in, in 
protection of my family and everyone else because they were thinking well of me because they knew that I had carved out a nice musical career, as you say, with my mobile nomination and, and all that. I'd been doing well with the music. But here I was telling everyone, my family and friends, that I'm going to destroy that by taking a guitar onto a show about business and enterprise and, and sing a song. And of course, no one thought that was a great idea. <laughs> they thought that, well, you know, Levi, we will support you if you want to go and do a pitch but do it conventionally, like everybody else had been on, on Jacket's Bed. But the thing is, I've never seen the show. So I, I didn't really get how serious what I was going to attempt to do. And all my family was trying to, you know, tell me to look it up on YouTube and try to see what I was about to face. But I thought that if I, if I did scare myself before I get there, I'm going to be asked before I get there. So I refused completely to find out what Jagan's Den was about. And I had about a, a couple of weeks window from being spotted to being asked to go on the show. So it wasn't a long time to learn anything about how, you know, terrible Duncan Bannatyne can be on the show or how, you know, Peter wears stripy socks and all the sort of stories. Yeah. That had, I never knew any of that. So appearing on the show was because I I wanted to be me. You know, yeah. I didn't want to go the route of leaving the guitar behind and go the conventional way of trying to pitch the sauce. I wanted to pitch Levi, Levi Roots. And I knew I was rubbish at the rest of this stuff because as you probably saw Jagged Stedman, the numbers became, I sweated like a pig and I got everything wrong and I thought, you know, the old lot was going out the window. But I think that first bit coming out with the song, and giving it a real me, you know, that was the investment part. And and I didn't know the rest was rubbish, but the dragons got it that, especially Peter, you know, he got the yeah. fact that this was about the man and not just about the product. As good as the product was, but um, this is still about the, the man. Fantastic. So managed to do it. I love that. I love that a lot. And we can all reflect back on that wonderful program. It was tremendous. And remarkable in its own originality. You mentioned Peter, and I, if we can, and you mentioned mentorship a little uh, uh, earlier. Can I quickly touch upon this? The, obviously, key to realising potential, and you had those two influential ment mentors from your time on Dragons Den. How important were they to your success? And do you think the story might have been different with perhaps different investors and different mentors? I, I think... Mentorship is one of the most marvelous things when it comes to, 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 to business and what you can pass on. Once you've learned something, what, what do you do with that knowledge? And it's, it's, it is about mentorship. Because for me personally, I've had monies in the past and a chance to get the business forward. Well, I don't think that's what I really needed because I've had it and I've lost it and it didn't really make it, didn't take me to where I want to, wanted to get to. What I needed was learning to how to use that money if yeah. I was lucky enough to, to get that. And I think that's what mentor provides because that's what Peter provided for me. Um, like I said, I've had the chances before, you know, but um, I didn't know how to use it. Is it, having someone like him around to be able to show you that said, the most important thing for me wasn't about the money. Because I tell you a little thing here, my first order for reggae reggae sauce Imagine you're, you're praying for something all your life, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm doing 67 bottles in my kitchen, 67 bottles. And within a week, Peter has called his friend, Justin King, the chief of Sainsbury's, 
and said, did you see Levi and Dragons then? Justin says, yes, I did. Um, bring Levi to see me. Within a few days, I was in front of Justin and he made a order of a quarter of a million bottles. And I'm still making 67 bottles at home with my kids. Be <laughs> <laughs> careful what you pray for. <laughs> It's extraordinary, that story, isn't it? Because I understand that Sainsbury's started off presuming it was only going to be whatever number it was per year. Yeah. And then you ended up doing that same amount per year in a week. Yeah, well, we, we were outselling ice tomato ketchup, which is a ridiculous story because yeah. can you really do that if with a sauce from someone's kitchen in Brixton, outselling the, the biggest sauce in the <laughs> It happened within Sainsbury's and broke all records to do with condiments in there just within within a, a few weeks. So just going back to the mentorship situation, that's what mentor does. Because for me, that's what Peter brought in. But it wasn't about the money because 50,000 pounds, which I got on Dragon's Den, was a drop in the ocean compared to what I needed to fill that order, that first order. Yeah. So I had to have somebody astute enough for me to be able to think, what do we do? You know, you're there, you know, thinking that you want something and then you, the Holy Grail is landed on your lap and said, you know, you can't go and I can't bring up Justin King and say, sorry, Justin, I can't deliver. Yeah. Give me six months or a year to do that. you got to think fast. And it's the mentorship that did that because all, all we did was just a, a powwow, a, a sort of sit down with Peter and, and his friends and think, ah, oh, let's do the licensing deal. Levi's name is big enough for us to call any source company within the country and say, can you produce this um, reggae reggae sauce for us? And that's what we did. And um, within a few weeks again, you know, we knocked on Justin King's door and said, here you are, sir, quarter of a million bottles of reggae reggae sauce. Thank you very much. So mentorship is a mark, because I could have never thought of that in my position back then. Um, I would have thought of using the 50,000 pounds to start slowly and to build as you go along. But, but these are the rooms that you're playing around in when, when, you're, when you've got a good mentor around you. Yeah, and I know you play a very significant part. We'll come on to it later, perhaps, in terms of your own support for many communities and, and mentoring many, many individuals uh, around you to follow in your footsteps, uh, Levi. I'm going to move to, to you mentioned uh, sort of mistakes uh, uh, earlier. Now, of course, hindsight is 2020, and every successful startup business will have to learn from its uh, its own mistakes before fully cementing itself. What what were the, the lessons that you learned um, in, in developing and growing your business? Well, I think marketing was a key one for me, finding that crucial market. That was a massive learning because I'm a Caribbean person and originally I thought that great, I've got a Caribbean sauce, I live in Brixton, it's a fantastic hub of Brooks of Caribbean people, should be easy to sell my sauce within there. And that was my first mistake, it failed dramatically because everyone, I didn't bank on the fact that everyone is Caribbean, they make their own sauce. They know what Caribbean sauce, why should they buy it from Eva Russo, who they know as a musician, as a singer? And so it absolutely failed, and I couldn't work it out. I nearly gave up such as, and I absolutely think it to myself, well, your owners rejected you for some reason or another, which in some ways was trying to teach me a lesson that I should go out and find my own market. And it's the realization of that, is that I had to get out from trying to sell Caribbean sauce to Caribbean people and find a market that didn't really know Caribbean food. 
that was willing to accept um, something new for them. And that's when I discovered the Shires, you know. My kids and my friends went into the Shires that we said, I mean, anything, any part of the country that had Shire at the end of it, that had some nice little country fates and country festivals, that's where I would end up in a couple of weeks and, and break through the market. And that's exactly what we did. So I think that was the, my greatest lesson, is about finding your niche market and, and, and be comfortable within that once you've discovered that. And yeah, I discovered the Shires and, and that's where I met the producer for Jagged Stand, one of the one of the type festivals that I used to do. Um, I met the producer one of Jagged Stand and the rest of history. Oh, well, that's lovely. And of course, you know, the Reggae Reggae Sauce brand is a modern day, I'm going, I'm going to call it a Cinderella story, starting, as you mentioned, in your kitchen. And well, I do think on... Cinderella sometimes on a Friday night, Sir Charles. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bring those memories. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, but of course, it's now grown into, as you said, uh, one of the UK's most recognisable brands, and it showcases the vibrancy of Jamaica Jamaican culture and food right the way across the country, into the showers, as, as you put it. But how do you see your brand developing and navigating perhaps some of the sort of complications of the competitiveness of a global markets and, and itself further capitalising on your own story, story, the Levi story that you articulated so well earlier? I, for us, I, I do think it's about authenticity, you know, for, for, for my brand in particular, you know, it's, it's got to be about remaining who you are and what the public perceives who you are, because I do believe that people are not buying my product, you know, like lots of other brands out there, people invest. You know, even if they are they're paying £1.50 for a bottle of sauce, every time they do that because they go back time and time again, that, that is an investment. And, and when people are in, making that investment, they expect you to, to convey yourself and the product and the brand in a particular way that is acceptable to them. And, and, and if you can continue to do that, you will get the support. And, and that's the formula that I think all great brands have, you know, have used. And, and I think I'm lucky enough because of my appearance in Dragon's Den to have, a, have accumulated a huge amount of customers, fans, or whatever you may call it, you may want to call it the entity, um, that brought into, into the product. And I know what they've brought into. They've brought into the authenticity of that. I'm able to bring them Caribbean food. As I said about the Shires of finding my market where people didn't necessarily know Caribbean food. I think that's where the Levi Roos brand is lucky enough to be a, a mainstream brand. Whereas, you know, people buy my books, not necessarily because they know Caribbean, but because they don't know and they would like, they would like to know. It's a bit different from some other Caribbean brands that are sort of lesser down in, in the supermarket shelves, whereas it's, it's more about their products and trying to get that across. But I think as long as I remain made my own self, um, and I mean that still says put some music in the food and fix my guitar up and sings and, and be freely me, I think that is how we navigate our, our way through. And it's an easy one, but it is, it is a lesson out there for people who are, are thinking of going into business. I say, to make the brand or the business about you. Again, that investment is about, is about you and, and, and how you portray yourself. I think that's a safer bet uh, for how you retain customers. 
Fantastic. And you mentioned that term authenticity, um, and you've done so already through this discussion. And perhaps we'll come through to it. It's very much a theme of the of, of, of the moment, and, and, and perhaps we will explore that a bit, bit further. But between sort of Brexit and the impact of COVID-19, um, you know, these are thing, big things impacting us at this moment in time. H how has your business uh, adapted and what do you see as the main sort of challenges and opportunities for you know, business such, such as your own uh, ahead as we see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, well, we're lucky. We, I've always said we've married well um, when we've chosen partners. Um, we're, uh, our, our mother company is a company called AB Road Foods, and they're the, one of the biggest companies here in and around the world um, that has taken on the license for Libra. As I said, that first order for Sainsbury's, you know, weeks after Dragon's Day. We've yeah, been for the kitchen to them. Then. Yeah. Absolutely. And and when you're lucky enough to attract um, big business like that, as a small business yourself, you know, it helps you to cushion, you know, it helps to cushion any blows that may happen. And Brexit is a, is a massive thing, but, uh, you know, with the size of AB World Foods, one of the, the, the reasons why you choose these partners is, is that you will land well when any, any crash crash is going on. So we rely upon them to be able to absorb, absorb any sort of problems when it comes to, to, to the stores. Because we are a, a European source, we manufacture in yep. Europe, in Poland. Um, that's where Aiden World Foods main factory is from. So obviously it will affect you know, myself as well as other businesses, small businesses as well. We are the ones that will, will be feeling any fallouts that there is. Because the smaller we are and smaller down, down the line as we get, it's the bigger the impact is. For instance, I think one of the key things that's going to sort of um, block small businesses because of Brexit is red tape. Again, this is one thing that affects small businesses, that time is your most important thing. Whereas bigger companies can absorb time and be able to get you. But when, when you're small, and especially for you know people that are just sort of setting up their business, those red tapes are going to be crucial to you. And people are going to face, face a lot of that. Understood. Uh, very, very, very much understood. Um, Changing the subject a, a, a little bit, and we talked earlier about community, but alongside music and reggae reggae, you are heavily involved in community, philanthropy and charity more widely. Perhaps if you would tell us a little bit more about that side and, and what community or charity engagement uh, are you perhaps most proud to be part of? Yeah, I, I must admit, it, it has taken over my life a bit doing the stuff that I, I, I do love, but it demands it, again, because that's the part of what you open yourself for when you become a brand that people, as I said, are invested in because of your integrity. And, and a lot of the projects that I do get involved with are ones that's very close to my heart, um, that pulls my heartstrings, and, and I feel like I'm not doing it because I've been asked. I'm doing it because I'm in that position, and I love to do it. So I, I, I get, I get to, I get to be engaged in it. As I said, you put yourself up there, and, and you've got to accept that. Um, so for me, it's just absolutely enjoying it, enjoying the stories that that you get out of it, and the way that you feel. But at the end of the day, it, it's still about people that are invested in yourself. Um, so it goes hand in hand. So even though, as I said, it's, it's a lot, a lot of it has taken over my life, but it is something that I enjoy. 
fantastic. And it, and again, I mean, look, 2020 has been a complex year. We've had the pan pandemic, but we also saw the global mobilization of Black Lives Matter. Uh, can I ask, you know, how, how has that impacted you and what, what's your reflections there to there from? I think Black Lives Matter is what came about and, and opened all our eyes up. You know, I, I, I don't think in particularly for, for people of color because to, to, to the situation, people of color's eyes have always been opened. So I, I, I think, because there's an old saying that who feels it knows it. It's a very old Rastaman saying that if, 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 you don't, if you've never felt it, then you don't really know. You know, and there's got to be some kind of event or some kind of great awakening of yourself for you to realize these factors like racism. And, and if you've never faced it, like a, a lot of people around the world, um, some type of event is going to come around so you really do get it. Um, that's something. And I think the George Floyd situation and, and the Black Lives Matter that ensued after that was that awakening for non-people of color. To, to, to have some understanding of, of what, you know, people were, were felt because the George Floyd thing was in everyone's, it was in everyone's yep. front room. You know, we all shocked and, and, and amazed and, and even, for, like I said, for non-Blacks, it was for people of that awakening that, you know, what the hell is happening? So it was, a, it was really an important time in life for black people just to, to, to be vindictive, if I can use that word for finding a better word, that it was out there, that that knee was on was on people's neck, was on our necks, you know, at all times that we've been trying to say, and what the metaphor perhaps was never explained properly, but now here it was. Um, but I think in the end, Black Lives Matter became a, a, a sort of victim of its own popularity, because when you have something that that's rushed, so quickly because of events and, and, and what it is, um, it's bound to, to drag along with it as well to unexplained it that people don't really understand what it meant and the bit about defund the police, I think all that kind of stuff wasn't good for, for the movement. But I think that was all due to the success of it and, and, and you know, it, it is expected in some kind of way that it wasn't all going to be right. So to answer your question, it, it affected me, yes, as a black person, obviously, you know, for me it was, the, the effectiveness was, is that a true, God, something has happened, people can see. Because then afterwards you, you, you see, even though it was for a moment, but all of our TVs and all of our films and advertisement and everything, everyone was black all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> It was evened up for, for a little while, you know, very short window of time as, as though it was. But for a while, it felt like, oh, God, this is a breath of fresh air. Even when you look around you and, and the things that represents the world that comes through your screens, it feels evened up in some, in some kind of way. So that, that's what we're hoping for, that some kind of balance comes back into it. In, in some way. That's, that's a big wish. But it, it did what it's supposed to do is open up other people's eyes. Yeah. And I think it, I mean, we'll, we can reflect on it too, but the impact that it will have had on the younger generations um, too, um, you, you, you will probably have a perspective and, and view. Yeah. Um, and actually, if I may, that draws me perhaps into a, a sort of uh, a, a semi-final question, if I can put it that way. But, you know, we've mentioned that these incredibly challenging times in which we're all living and arguably, those most effective in these times are, are that younger generation. And I'm 
No, Levi, you've got, by way of example, a young son of eight years old. I'm keen to understand what advice would you give to them and would you give to, to him? Wow. Based upon my own realization, it is about timing. You know, how short time is. I, I wish somebody had explained to me um, when I was growing up how I'm trying to explain it to my son, you know, that you don't really have long on this earth. Um, and the younger you are is, 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 is the less irrelevant you think of time. Um, and, and, and nobody really grabs you and explains times to you. You can explain everything else, but you expect to work that out yourself as you go along, you get a beard, as you go along, you get older. But I, I wish somebody had explained to me about how important it is to see that you don't have long to achieve, you know, things, things that you want to achieve. Um, so that's what I, I, I would kind of tell my, my own self, which, which is what I'm trying to explain to Christopher, my, my, my son as well, um, that you, you don't languish your time. Because for a child like myself coming from my background, there's always that scenario that said that you have to work twice as hard as everyone else. Because as I said, it took me until I was 48 before I was discovered in Dragonstein and became a massive success with a multi-million pound business just weeks and months after that. That doesn't sound like somebody has been plucked out of somewhere that has no, no sense of what business. Yeah. You have it there. But as I said, no one comes around to where you were to say, look, I spot you when you were young and I can help you to, 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 to get to where you are. That's what's needed for, for, for younger minds now, that it doesn't take them as long as, as, as myself to be able to, um, to, to reach to the best of themselves. Very good, very good. And my sort of final question, if I may, you know, we mentioned, we hope that we can see some light at the end of the, 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 the tunnel. Um, what is it that you are looking forward to? What is it that you will be promoting to, uh, to your, your family and your communities as we, as we near Near the near the end of that tunnel, I think it's just to reflect back on 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 life. Um, I think COVID has has made that so important um, as 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 how it's important that we take care of the important things. Um, again, just going back to my answer just before about that, we don't have long and we don't know where where we are. Um, I mean, I've lost my mom, and what three months later, I lost my brother. You know, in in between that, you never know. You know where is where is going, and when it comes as as a shock, you can never be prepared for it. Yeah. Um, but as I think for where we are with COVID now, and our life has changed, and everything has become even shorter. You know, I think is it's a massive thing that we use this time to reflect on what's been happening and and try to evaluate. You know, our lives over the past year. Because that's such a big and strange thing, you know, and, and, and nobody has really evaluated that yet because we're still in it and it's getting worse as, as we go along. So as soon as we get the time, you know, I, I, I think that's what all of us should do is, is have that time to reflect on our lives and, and maybe to plan going forward for similar effects like this. Very good. And a single final word of advice for those people who are setting up their own businesses, who are following in your footsteps, uh, becoming entrepreneurs, what would that be? It would be about planning ahead. You know, it's getting, nothing, you can never get an investment without a business plan. 
because so it starts there. You're gonna write, have everything down on paper. I mean, even if now, if you're not quite sure of, of, of what you wanna do or how you wanna take your business for, write everything down, you know. Um, and even for mistakes, you know, I've always said that there's no such thing as, as mistakes. Write it down. Mistakes becomes feedback. So you can always go back to it and learn and learn from that. So do all you can, but keep a lot, keep your business plan intact. Because that, and, and the good thing about a business plan also, because you have to have a beginning and an end. If you're feeling ever bad about yourself or about the business, just forward to the end and have a look at the end of the business plan, which you've got the money and it looks so fantastic and your business is growing. It's bound to give you some motivation to carry you through those early days. And I'm going to guess you would also give the advice that uh, uh, put your own personal brand into it too. That is absolute key because the investment is not in the product, especially if you're getting a, a, an investor. Investing, he will always want to make sure that whoever is, is, is selling the business will protect his investment, and that's not the product, it is about who is in charge. So, that's where the investment is going to go to the person to the person and the personal brand. Well, I love that, and that I think is a really very positive message on which to end. Uh, uh, again, full of hope and optimism. Levi, thank you, thank you, and thank you for joining me and us today. I've I have thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed meeting uh, with you uh, and, and so enjoyed hearing your story uh, of Reggie Reggie and, and, and much more. Many, many congratulations on all you've uh, achieved. I, I mean, I for one, certainly as the barbecue season resumes, I will be amongst the very many, I'm sure, that will be putting a new bottle of Reggie Reggie on the kitchen table and keeping a few spare bottles in the pantry at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, so we, we wish you all the very, very best of, of luck ahead. And of course, for the, the business and for Reggae Reggae Source. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sir Charles. One love, respect. Yeah. Respect to Mr. Hedwin. One quick question, if I may. Yes. I, Let me know. I, I do see your guitar on your, to your, your, your side. Oh, Tell us a little you. bit more. And are you able to <laughs> play us one little bit of a chord or two? Definitely. Somebody put some music in the food for me. Give me some Ricky Ricky sauce. I drink a Ricky sauce. It's so nice. I had to name it twice. I call it Ricky Ricky sauce. I drink a Ricky sauce. Brilliant. What a lovely way to finish. Thank you very, very much, Levi, and we much look forward to seeing you again very soon. Thank you. Well, we've enjoyed another wonderful and inspiring discussion today with a great entrepreneur of our time. And as the barbecue season approaches, I, for one, will certainly be stocking up our pantry at home with a bottle or three of reggae reggae sauce. Stay tuned for more conversations, great discussions, and inspirational guests. That's all for me, other than to say, stay safe and well, and bye for now.